Show me the money. Welcome to the MoneyWeb Market Commentator Podcast, where leading investment professionals share their investment insights. Your host, Rake van Niekerk. Welcome to my weekly Market Commentator Podcast, where I pick the brains of South Africa's leading investment professionals. There are currently many divergent views about the opportunities and risks for domestic and international equity markets. And it's always good to hear what the top fund managers are doing, which shares are they buying, which shares are they selling. And my guest today is Carl Leinberger. He is the Chief Investment Officer at Coronation. He has been with Coronation for 21 years and he has been the Chief Investment Officer since 2008. So he has been in the hot seat for around 13 years. Carl currently co-manages several Coronation Funds, including the Coronation Equity Fund, the Coronation SA Equity Fund, the Coronation Balanced Plus Fund, and the Coronation Global Opportunities Equity Fund. Carl, thank you so much for joining me. That seems to be a mouthful. Uh, How much does it take to manage a fund? Especially in times like this where you've got uh, what's happening in China, it sometimes feels like it's um, it's a 24-hour job. Yeah, no, I mean, managing money in a very uncertain world is always a very demanding task. And um, I think the big challenge is to try and keep as much balance in your life as you can and make sure you do as much exercise as you can and spend time with family and then you just hope to come through it all. And I mean, South Africa as well. I mean, managing South African money with the, the unrest we saw a few weeks ago, it, it really is, it's amazing. We're just in the office now and just laughing between ourselves. You just never know what's around the corner. It really is a kind of crazy world we all live in. Uh, I'm sure many inexperienced fund managers would sit in front of a screen the whole day and, and, and see what's happening and being very nervous about Any downturn like we are seeing today, uh, for the record, it's Thursday the 19th of August and as we are speaking, the market is down 2.5%. So there needs to be a balance between, you know, having a a long-term view, but also these 2.5% drops could be, uh, what is the right word? It could cause some uh, interesting thinking within an office. Yeah, I think most of the time, 90-something percent of the time, this kind of stuff is all noise and the challenge is to keep focusing on the longer term. The problem is trying to distinguish noise from signal. And sometimes, 90-something percent of the time, it's noise, but sometimes there's a signal in there. And so, for example, if you look what's happening in China at the moment, what I think all investors are trying to get their mind around is how much of this is noise? How much of this three or four years from now will I look back as has been something I barely remember and a big buying opportunity? Or how much of what we were hearing was actually signal and in the case of China, how much of it is signal that the country and business prospects have fundamentally changed, you know, forever and, and meaningfully so. Um, and that's always the challenge is to try and distinguish noise from signal. Because if you get sucked up in the noise, you're never really going to make good long-term decisions and you're going to end up with very mediocre outcomes. So do you think what's happening in China now is a signal? I was hoping you weren't going to ask me that. <laughs> you know, in times like this, we get together, you know, the, the team, we have a lot of debate. We do a lot of, you know, we don't just sit and read journalism. We do a lot of proprietary research that we've been calling every contact we have in China. And we have a lot of contacts because, you know, we've got a global and emerging market team. And we, we know we've spent a lot of time, a lot of people spend a lot of time in China over the years. We, we speak to as many independent experts based outside of China as we can. 
that you put all of that together and, and, and we have a view, we have a base case, which, I, which I'll take you through, but for sure we understand that that, that could be wrong. You know, one is just so much uncertainty in a country like that that is, really finds itself in a situation where it's been run by one person who has power unprecedented in, in modern times and, 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 and it's an opaque place. You know, we don't for sure know exactly what he wants um, for the country and for industry. Um, but our base case is, is, that, is that we've had a major drawdown in some of the world's best businesses. Sure, life has changed for these companies. And we would expect whatever level of earnings we're expecting them to deliver five years from now, it's lower than we, what we would have thought six months ago. But all in, we think it's a buying opportunity for some of the businesses. That's the second point I want to make is you've got to be very careful of broad brushstroke answers. It does seem to us that there are certain businesses, certain industries that have been meaningfully and permanently impaired by the regulations that are coming. And then there are some that are going to navigate it quite well. And then there are a couple that, in fact, might end up being beneficiaries of it all. So I think we've got to come in here with a scalpel. You've got to be careful of broad brushstroke answers that, you know, all of these stocks are, are buyers. But so that's what we're doing is we focus focusing our efforts on stock picking, trying to find out and work out who the beneficiaries are or those who are going to be relatively insulated. And that's where our portfolios are stacked at the moment. I'm looking at the fact sheets of your equity fund, your balance plus fund, um, your SA equity fund. Uh, and, and all three of them have significant holdings in NASPERS and Process. They all feature in the list of top 10 holdings. So where, where does Tencent fit in with that view you've just explained? Yeah. Do you think they will benefit from what is happening or not? So we think the, bene- the, the clear beneficiary is JD.com. We think that Tencent would be in the category of a business that is going to navigate it fairly well and come out of it sort of with minimal impairment. Some knock, but small and manageable. And the big reason for that is Tencent has always been enormously respectful of the government and government regulation and their employees' welfare and consumer interests. So they've been very careful over the years not to push monetization too hard, not to impair the user experience on their apps. They've been very careful with new verticals that they've gone into, like short-form video and fintech, not to move aggressively, to make sure they always had clean content, to make sure that they never pushed the regulatory envelope. They put Pony Ma, who is their, you know, their, their number one person in charge of regulatory interactions for many years, as opposed to putting a more junior person in. Um, and I think, interestingly enough, that Chris Becker actually and Naspers deserve a lot of credit for that. Tencent have told us many times over the years that that, that was a big contribution from Naspers, just to not fall to the temptation of running your business aggressively and, and, and run the risk of, of running awry of the regulators. And so I think that that commitment over 15 years of business, we think, should stand them in relatively good stead as the sort of regulatory announcements come over the months ahead of us. That's interesting. Before we, we, we talk equities, I just want to talk about the U.S. situation where there could be an increase in interest rates. Uh, we are seeing a higher than normal inflation right there that could trigger rates uh, increases uh, maybe earlier rather than later. Um, do you regard what is happening there as a potential signal because there seems to be a lot of nervousness 
every time Jerome Powell takes a podium? Yeah, I think in this particular case, I think people are right to be nervous. I think that 12 or 13 years of zero-cost money has had a dramatic impact on every major bond market, equity market, and currency market on the planet. And I think we got a little foretaste of that with the um, Bill Huang's um, uh, family office, the collapse of that a few months ago, just the astounding levels of leverage that he had in, in, in some family office that no one had ever heard of. And I think there's just this enormous wall of money around the world sitting on the view that interest rates are going to be low forever. And we do worry about a disruptive end to that status quo and, and what it would mean for markets and currencies and interest rates and bond markets certainly is something that worries us. And I think the more nervousness there is in the system, the healthier it is. You know, what you don't want is complacency, um, complacency, arrogance, indifference. So I actually take a little bit of comfort from the fact that the market is, seems to be a little worried about, you know, how the Fed exits this unprecedented period of, of stimulus that we've all lived through. I listened to Joe Biden when he addressed America and the world uh, about what was happening in Afghanistan. And, and one thing he said actually rings true. He said the withdrawal was inevitable. It had to happen. And to pull that through to equity markets, we are seeing a lot of liquidity in the market. We are seeing ultra low interest rates. And that needs to change. It, it is bound to happen. The question is, will the action be before that actual money tap is closed or will we see a massive reaction when it actually is closed? Yeah, I mean, the one thing I've learned is you never know when you've got a very abnormal situation. You know, the game that we all play where you try and sort of work out what the path towards normality is, I think that that's a, a very dangerous game to play because one, you know, one is so often surprised. And so certainly in our funds today, Coronation hasn't owned. So we, we obviously all, all, all managers ask themselves what, you know, how to hedge the risk. And it, it's not easy um, because so many assets are expensive. But the one, the one asset that seems to have lost a lot of its shine is, is gold and in particular gold shares. And we haven't owned gold shares for almost 15, 20 years in a meaningful way in Coronation portfolios. And we've actually been quite meaningful buyers of SA gold miners in our in our equity and particularly in our balanced funds. And there are some company-specific legs to that investment case, but at least half of it is that we think it's sort of fairly cheap protection that you can avail yourself right now in a time of what we see as elevated risk. Let's talk about equity markets. There has been a lot said in, in recent months and years about the poor performance of the local market over the past decade or so, although there has been some good performances uh, of late. And the local market really underperformed the international markets uh, over this period. And there are many voices that say, you know, this is going to continue in, in future. Um, although some big asset managers such as uh, Alan Gray and 91 have expressed some optimism about the prospects of the local market. What is your view on this? Yeah, we're in the camp of those two managers there. If you look at our balanced funds, we were very aggressively overweight um, in the GFC. And by about 2011, we had moved to an underweight position in SA equities. And it initially hurt because we had that raging 
equity bull market in 2012, 2013. But then, as you point out, ever since 2013, our equity market has done really poorly. And we have been underweight and low in SA equities all the way through until the middle of uh, last year. I'm just talking about SA equities here, not equities in total. And so for the first time in more than a decade, we are overweight and meaningfully overweight SA equities in our multi-asset class funds. And as you say, SA equities have done poorly. We find fantastic value in the SA equity market. doesn't matter whether we're looking in resources, whether we're looking at some of the global stocks listed here that are cheap for their own company-specific reasons, or any or, or many of the large number of pure domestic stocks that we have in our market. And when we contrast that against cash, given the kind of returns that cash are, are, offer investors, we, we think SA equities are very compelling right now. And it's a big change in view compared to where we were three years ago, five years ago. Is that a long-term view? Well, coronation's always long-term, right? We'll never give you a short-term view. <laughs> So I think, in fact, if it was short term, you know, we may not have that that kind the kind of conviction that's necessary to to take that view because, you know, I mean, we've all just lived through the rioting of a few weeks ago, and that's got to shake any South African citizen or investor. No, the view is entirely premised on the sort of long term earnings power that we see from those stocks, very low multiples, management teams having navigated the COVID pandemic incredibly well and protected earnings bases, protected balance sheets. Um, no, it's, it's all premised on, on very compelling value that we've seen across the board. You've said earlier that you are buying gold mines at the moment or gold companies at the moment. Are there other sectors in the market which have also attracted your attention? Yeah, I, th- I think if I go through the categories, so um, the diversified miners, not um, really been Anglo and, and Glencore. We think they've got the right commodity mix for the next decade. Then if you look at certain of the global stocks listed here, we think Aspen is very attractive. We think Bidcorp is very attractive as, as a business coming as a, as a beneficiary of normalization, slow normalization in the hospitality industry. Uh, we think Quilta as one of the winning players in the UK wealth management industry, which is growing very strongly. And then in the domestic market, what's interesting is we think that there are a lot of businesses that have used the pandemic to strengthen their businesses, to strengthen their their moats, to strengthen their franchises, to strengthen their standing with clients. And um, we've been big buyers of some of those domestic stocks. Examples would be Metropolitan Momentum, which has a new management team and is becoming a very high quality insurer after having a very tough 10 or 15 years. First Strand, which we think is navigating, you know, excellent management team, um, digitalizing its business. It's very successfully coming out of this as a winner. And there are many other examples. If you look at the private education space, it's a big beneficiary from what from what's happening in the public education space and, and what a challenge COVID has been for them. So whether you look at an Advitech as a, as a good example of a business that's coming through a tough period very well competitively. You know, there are just so many examples um, if you look at the restaurant space, a business like Spur and Famous Brands are handling the COVID pandemic so much better than independent restaurants can. Um, and we think once we come out two, three years from now to more normal times, they are going to be very big winners from that consolidation in the restaurant space. So, yeah, I mean, this, my, my real message to investors is, is people feel incredibly pessimistic about South Africa, especially after what happened a few weeks ago. But, but 
you know, it's very important in investing to, to take emotion out of it. And in fact, we've got stunning value in our SA equity and bond markets. And, and, and we find ourselves in a situation where we overweight equities and overweight SA bonds, both of them for the first time in a decade. I don't think this is the time to move all your money offshore at a time um, when, when many global assets are actually very expensive after 13 years of, of zero interest rates. I am looking at your balanced plus fund. It's a big one, close to 100 billion rand fund. And if you look at the top 10 holdings, there are few companies that are really South African focused. Uh, it's the, the, the normal big um, international firms. Uh, Anglo is the biggest holding. Then Egerton Capital Equity Fund, I believe that's a British or an English fund. Uh, Naspers, uh, then the, the, the one I refer to, the locally focused one, First Rand, and the others are also international. Glencore Process, Contrarius Global Equity Fund, Lansdowne Capital, uh, Tremblant Capital, I don't know those uh, companies. Would your focus still remain on these big international companies listed here who earn most of their revenues and, and profits uh, offshore? No, so I think that that analysis has been sort of the water's been muddied by holdings in some in, in our global equity fund of funds. If you looked at the stock, the, the SA equities, you'd find plenty of domestic stocks in their big positions. And then also what we find is quite a lot of value in the mid and small cap space. So on their own, any single stock might not make it into a top 10 or a top 20. But if you look at the basket of those domestic stocks, you know, that is a meaningful weighting in the portfolio. How many holdings are there in your SA equity portfolio? It's not a metric I look at often, but I would guess there are 70 stocks. And the reason for that is there would be plenty of sort of mid-cap, small-cap stock positions, like a, a spur I mentioned earlier, you know, it might only be, you know, a quarter of a percent, but if you add five or six or seven of those together, you get a meaningful position. But that's a big portfolio. I think there are probably not more than 200 to 250 investable shares on the local market. Yeah, so obviously there's bonds and there's real estate and there's global equities and there's cash holdings and uh, commodity ETFs. So about 48% of that portfolio would be in domestic equities. And then, yeah, I mean, we've been able to build meaningful positions in a lot of mid-cap companies that, you know, actually do move the needle in a fund of that size, just because they've been so cheap for so long, you can actually build up a decent sized position. For all of my career until the last two years or so, you know, we were fighting against foreigners to build stakes in domestic stocks, and they've disappeared from our market. These days, it's just domestic managers and a few brave individuals who prepare to own domestic, SA domestic stocks. And um, so you can build quite meaningful positions um, in companies that you might not have been able to five years ago when prices were a lot higher, ironically enough. Just lastly, there are many asset managers around the world who are looking at cryptos. They're also launching some crypto investment products. But the South African market has not done that. I don't think there is any local fund manager who is offering a crypto type or a crypto linked uh, investment product. Have have you glanced at it? Yeah, so it kind of feels to me like cryptos have moved into the category, the age old categories of um, religion and politics where people don't have mild opinions on it. 
So in the last two or three years, you can throw vaccinations and cryptos into that category. <laughs> so I always battle to talk to clients about cryptos because, because opinions are so polarized and so you know, high conviction. I think blockchain is fantastic. And I think that there's a lot of scope for blockchain to be used in things like uh, municipal title deeds, um, insurance contracts, where the public would like to see, you know, what people's holdings are as opposed to sitting with some financial intermediary where, or some intermediary where you never quite, you know, get the complete peace of mind that you want. I think cryptos themselves are enormously difficult. I think for fund managers, it's quite easy at the moment because these things are not regulated. Um, so we just are not allowed to be there in most of the crypto assets. I think there are some very real concerns I have about cryptos. I don't think they're money. Um, and the reason I don't think they can be money is that they don't have a stable value. And if something doesn't have a stable value, one can't really borrow or lend in that. So that's a very fundamental requirement for any currency. But I think it would be wrong for any long-term thinker and allocator of capital to completely dismiss cryptos. I think that they are having an enormous impact and there's a lot of money behind them. So we are doing lots of work trying to understand cryptos more deeply, trying to understand um, the role or value of decentralized finance, that crypto exchanges, that the blockchain might bring to certain industries and just to the world we're living in. And I think so we've got someone who's basically spending all their time at the moment trying to understand all of this. And I don't think there's going to be an enormous impact on our portfolios, but I think it's incumbent on us to, to have a deep understanding of it all. I think there's definitely going to be industries that are disrupted from some of the things that cryptos have brought to the world. And that's definitely our first priority is just to understand those. Yeah, so we're not dismissive, but we certainly don't have any holdings. And, and there are some concerns that we have that we are trying to get our minds around. That would probably be the best way of describing it. Carl, thank you so much for your time today. It was an absolutely fascinating discussion. Uh, that was Carl Leinberger, the Chief Investment Officer at Coronation. Thanks for listening to the MoneyWeb Market Commentator Podcast, where leading investment professionals share their investment insights. Hosted by Rake Fonica. For more MoneyWeb podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.